It is really great to have the kids with us this morning. Kids, I'm not going to speak for too long. Don't worry. Parents, don't worry. Don't stress either. Uh, if you were here last Sunday morning, you may recall that we, we listened to and we looked at a very distinct iTunes, uh, a really relatively unique psalm. It was Psalm 39, which was and is an individual lament. But today's psalm is quite different because Psalm 9 is a psalm of praise. It's much more upbeat, which is a relief. And in it, David recognizes, or at least he draws attention to two key aspects of God's character that fuels his praise. Now, last Sunday, as as Roy led us in worship, he referred to these two men. And all week, their names and their faces have continued to appear on our TV screens and in our national newspapers. Now, I'm not going to get involved in the debate or the discussion about their specific situation, but at the core of this story are two issues, justice and compassion. And in Psalm 9, these two issues appear, one of them explicitly, the other I want to suggest is implied. But it is the justice and the compassion of God that David actually refers to and he celebrates. So if you do have a copy of God's Word, can I invite you and encourage you to turn to Psalm chapter 9. And I want you to notice how this inspiring psalm actually begins. Because right up front, David says, I will praise you, Lord, with all my heart. And I don't know if you can remember, but at the start of this service, we stood together and we sang, I will worship with all of my heart. Because that is the type of praise, that is the type of worship that God not only deserves, but God desires wholehearted worship and praise now whenever we talk about the heart from a faith perspective and this is just a reminder or whenever we talk about the heart in a biblical context we're not talking about the physical blood pumping organ that's found in our chests the word heart or the term heart in the bible it refers to our emotions to our wills to our intentions to our minds, to our thinking ability, to our conscience. Someone has actually said that all the ways in which the Bible refers to the inner person, in other words, the real you, the real me, is summed up in this one term, heart. So whenever David says, I will praise you, Lord, with my whole heart, this involves every aspect of who David is. In other words, his mind is engaged. His emotions are employed. His will is involved. It's wholehearted praise. And it is that level of connection that is required if we are going to praise and worship God with integrity. In the New Testament, Jesus came along and confirmed, My Father seeks worshippers. But what are the kind of worshippers that my Father seeks? Those who worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, there's a reality to it. It's genuine. It's honest. It's true. It comes from within. It flows from the heart. It's inside out worship. And so the obvious question just to ask this morning is this. Having reached this stage of our service, near the end of our service, did you and I praise? Have we praised God this morning with all of our hearts? Have our minds been engaged? Have our emotions been employed? Have our wills been involved? Or have we just been going through the motions of another Sunday morning service? One of the striking features of verse 1, and actually verse 2 as well, 
is that the four lines that starts that psalm all begins with two words, I will. There's intentionality expressed by David. Because let's be honest, we don't always feel like praising God to this level. Circumstances dictate. I don't know what frame of mind you came to church in this morning. Life crowds in, doesn't it? Dark days do descend. Problems arise. And therefore, like David, there are times when this has got to be an act of choice. I don't feel like doing this, God. But I will praise you. I'm going to make a determined commitment this morning to praise you with my entire being. Sort of struck me that that phrase, I will praise you, Lord, with all my heart, is a great one-liner to pray at the beginning of each and every service. In fact, it's a great one-liner to pray at the beginning of each and every day. But in addition to this upward dimension, this God-directed expression of our praise, there is an outward dimension. Look at the second half of verse 1. I will tell of all the marvelous things that you have done. You see, David isn't just going to direct his praise to God. He's also committed to sharing the greatness of God with those around him. He's going to speak up. He's going to speak out. And if you jump down to verse 11, you will see this again because it actually says, Sing praises to the Lord. So there's the upward dimension. Tell the world about his unforgettable deeds. There's the outward dimension. Do you know, our praise has got to spill out onto our streets. Our praise of God has got to go beyond these walls. We can't, we shouldn't keep it to ourselves. Those we live with, those we go to school with, those we work with, those we study with, those we socialize with, they need to be told of the marvelous things that God has done, his unforgettable deeds. But I think there's two problems with this. And the first is that we do forget. We easily forget. And so right throughout the Bible, there is this constant encouragement and reminder to recall, to reflect to remember all the great things that God has done. It's not about living in the past, but it's about recognizing the importance of past events, the importance of what God has actually done for us in the past. Have a look at these words from Psalm 77. I will remember, says the psalmist, the deeds of the Lord. I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will meditate on your works. I will consider your mighty deeds. And so this morning I thought we'd pause and we'd do exactly that. It's time for a bit of congregational participation. I thought what we would do is we would actually stop in this service and we would remember some of the unforgettable deeds that God has done, some of the wonders that God has done. So somebody remind me of one incredible thing God has done. Sorry? Thank you. Yes? He sent Jesus. Anyone else? Don't be shy, all night. Sorry? He's given us his word. Thank you. Anything else? Sorry? Created the word, yeah. Anything else? Yep, he's given us his Holy Spirit. Allows us to pray to him. Thank you. He saved you, Jim. Thank you. He's building his church. Thank you, Ryan. 
the unforgettable deeds of God. You know, sometimes we, we do forget, and it's so important to recall. It's so important to remember them. I think the second problem is this. How do we actually tell it? How do we tell it? How do we communicate some of those things we have shared with our friends? How do we communicate those with our neighbours? How do we communicate those things with the people we'll go back and share school with this week? And how do we do it without it sounding forced and unnatural or even crass? I think this is one of the key challenges that confronts us today in an increasingly secular and godless society where people have turned off and tuned out. Our lives must speak of God, yes. And I know that sometimes actions speak louder than words. But you know there is also a need for our voices to articulate the greatness of God. David says, I will tell. And again, there's an intentional expression there. I am going to do this. I'm going to tell others about the wonders you've done, God. I'm going to tell the world, the other psalmist writes, of the unforgettable deeds of God. And I hope and pray that we can echo that resolve. That as we go back to school this week, that as we go back to uni, that as we go back to our workplaces, that we will speak. And I know it's hard. But we will speak of the wonderful things God has done for us and in us and through us. And that it will sound natural and that it will sound unforced and it will be sensitive. Now from verses 3 to 8, we confront the first aspect of uh, God's character that David identifies. God's justice and judgment. Look at verses 4 and 8. I have them on the screen there. You have judged with fairness. And he will judge the world with justice and rule the nations with fairness. And you know, on the back of a couple of weeks, whenever the subject of justice has been hotly debated, and the intensity of feeling regarding what is just and what is fair has been strongly expressed on a local level, a national level, and an international level, I find it personally helpful to be reminded that the ultimate judge of all the earth will one day do right. Do you know, we may struggle with so much apparent injustice in our world. We may at times be left scratching our heads and wondering why. But our Christian faith reminds us and screams to anyone who is prepared to listen that one day God will judge with justice. One day God will rule the nations with fairness. One day a just God is going to have the final say. In verse 8, the psalmist uses the future tense. He will judge. That day is coming. That day will come. And the New Testament reaffirms this. Whenever Paul finds himself speaking to the men of Athens, surrounded by a bunch of philosophers, he says this, for God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. And I find great comfort in that. Now, incidentally, that doesn't mean that we don't work for justice, that we don't pray for justice, that we don't long to see justice now. But it does mean that when I'm quite honestly frustrated and confused by the complexity of certain issues and circumstances, I, in a statement of faith, And it is a statement of faith. I embrace the words of David the psalmist and I say, God will judge this world and all those in it with justice. And he will rule the nations of this world with fairness. And later on in the psalm, if you look at verse 16, David actually confirms, God, you are known for your justice. In other words, God has a reputation for delivering justice. God has a reputation for being fair. And in fact, the whole story of the Bible and the cross reveals that reality. 
But I love the final verse of the psalm where David says to God, let the nations know they're but men. They are merely humans. And you know, whenever judgment's left to us, whenever justice is in our hands, there will inevitably be problems. Mistakes will be made. Poor decisions will be taken. But thankfully, ultimate justice is not in the hands of mere men, but ultimate justice is in the hands of a just God. The second issue or aspect of God's character that I just want us to highlight very briefly is God's tender-hearted kindness. You know, God is a just God, but he's also a compassionate Father. Look at verse 9. The Lord is a refuge or a shelter for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And it would be wrong of me to stand here and say that people don't suffer injustice because I know, I know people do. And the truth is that many of them are going to have to wait until that future day in order to see true justice. They're not going to get justice this side of that day. But in the meantime, what I take great comfort in is this, that that just God doesn't abandon them. He doesn't turn their back on those who are suffering injustice. He doesn't walk away from them. God doesn't just say, hey, listen, grin and bear it. Instead, a compassionate God is and becomes a shelter and a refuge. And the Psalms are actually infused with this idea of God being a refuge. Psalm 46, God's a refuge and strength. He's an ever-present help in trouble. Psalm 62, trust him in all times, for God's a refuge. Psalm 91, God's a refuge in my fortress. And David was acutely aware that the world we live in is not a safe place. But along with many of the other psalm writers, David discovered that God was always a safe place in an unsafe world. And so using many different metaphors, the psalm writers attempted to convey that truth and that reality and that fact. The psalms are actually saturated with metaphors. But what is a metaphor? Somebody help me out. A bit more congregational participation. What is a metaphor? A comparison, yeah. It's a figure of speech that describes one one thing in terms of another. It is imaginative speech that helps create visual images. And so what do the psalm writers do? They use metaphors whenever they want to speak of how good God is and how much of a refuge he is. And so God is described as what? He's a rock. He's a hiding place. He's a fortress. He's a shield. He's a shelter. He's a strength. He's a strong tower. And all those visual images are there to create awareness of the safety that we can all find in God. And for some of us here this morning, as we think about going back to school, as we think about going back into work or university, take a gap year, or return to the routine after the summer, we need to know that a compassionate God is all of those things. And note that he is those things in times of trouble. God has never promised an easy life. God has never promised to save us from difficulties. But what God has promised to be is a refuge and a strength in times of trouble. Because trouble is inevitable. Another reference to the compassion of God comes through in verse 10. Whenever David says, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. You see, God doesn't abandon the searcher. 
God doesn't abandon us whenever we search for him. God isn't distant. God isn't remote. God isn't removed. God is a God of close proximity. God is a God of nearness. A God who wants and who offers connection. A God who longs for a relationship. But look at how that verse begins. Those who know your name will trust in you. Those who know your name. Names are important, aren't they? We've all got at least one. And whenever you mention someone's name, you immediately make connections. You get a picture in your mind. You associate certain things with that name. So, for example, whenever I say Barack Obama or Simon Cowell, you, along with the rest of this church, will begin thinking something about that person. You will think something about their character, something about their reputation, something about their background, something about their role, something about their family, something about their influence, just in a name. So names for a whole variety of reasons are really important, but no name is more important than God's name. And nothing is more important than what we associate and what we connect and what we picture alongside that name. You know, whenever Jesus gave us that model prayer that we've come to know as the Lord's Prayer, how does it begin? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The third of the ten says, do not misuse the name. God's name is clearly significant and knowing God's name is vital. But as we probably all know, there are many names of God and for God in Scripture. And one of the key reasons why God's name is so important is because it's via the name of God that we discover what God is, who God is, and what God is like. In other words, God's name is a revelation of his very person and his character. Someone has described the names of God in Scripture as mini-portraits. And therefore, as we engage with God's revealed names in Scripture, we're able to build up a better picture, a clearer picture, a more colourful, a more dynamic picture of what the God of the universe is really like. So again, final piece of congregational participation. Who can tell me some of the names of God? Because it says those who know your name. So who can tell me some of the names of God? Yahweh? El Shaddai? Emmanuel, Jehovah, and then Jehovah, some, give me the, some of the bigger ones. Jehovah, Jireh, all of them. We could go on. There's just some of them. Do you know, through knowing God's name, we discover who God is, what God is like. And as a result, as you look at that verse, it says, those who know your name, they will trust in you. Because as you discover who God is, as you get to know him via his name, as he reveals himself via the names in Scripture, you can say, this is a God I can trust. This is a God who is my shepherd. This is a God who is prominent, who is strong, who is mighty who is the master, who is the creator, who is the preserver, who is the sustainer. And finally, as David builds up this picture of a compassionate God, he celebrates the fact that God doesn't ignore the cries of the helpless and those who suffer. God is a champion of the weak. And therefore, although those in need and those who are poor may feel ignored. They may feel that all hope is gone. David makes it clear, according to verse 18, that the needy will not be ignored forever. 
The hopes of the poor will not always be crushed. Others may forget. We may even forget. We do forget. Let's be honest. But you know, God remembers. Because he is a compassionate God. So let me attempt to sum this up. God's a God of justice. A God of ultimate justice. God will have the final say. And God is a God of compassion. He's a safe place. He's a God who can be trusted because we know his name. He's a God who will never abandon those who search for him. And he's a God who cares for the vulnerable, the marginalized, and the outcast. And in light of those realities, it's no wonder that as David reflects on a God of justice and a God of compassion, that he starts the psalm by saying, I will praise you, and I'm going to praise you with all of my heart. And my prayer is we will just go and do likewise.